Coming up on today's show, the Conservatives have made a lot of ground talking about insider spending by the Liberal government. Questionable spending? Well, now the shoe's on the other foot. The government coming through with support for farmers and producers during this terrible start to the summer season. And we're also going to talk today about building codes in our province. Got a text from Lee says, and politicians wonder why there is so much voter apathy. They're all the same. I may just skip this next election. Uh, yeah, it, it, it can be tough sometimes. You, you, you want to look for someone that you can sort of admire and look up to. And, and you're right. I mean, that's always been the knock on politicians. They're all the same. I don't know if they're all the same, but these kind of stories don't help with that impression. So let's get the details around this uh, story that David Aiken is breaking. Uh, David, uh, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure to chat. Yeah, thanks, Shane. You know what? Listen, in defense of politicians everywhere, and this is not a partisan <laughs> thing or whatever, but, you know, if you're a, I don't know, I'll use Alberta. If you're a UCP politician or you're a UCP House official yep. and you're trying to write up some policy documents on a given issue, you think you're going to go hire a new Democrat to do that? No, you're going to hire a UCP person to do that. And you know what? There's rules in every legislature, would be at Alberta or here in Ottawa, that allows some latitude sure. for politicians to go ahead and do that. Okay, so that's that's... It, that's where we should say, yes, sometimes politicians are going to hire, quote unquote, their friends or yep. or connected because you're not going to hire the other team to do your real inside policy polling comms work. But here's the problem is that Aaron O'Toole and the conservatives here in Ottawa for the last like three or four months have been hammering yeah. the Trudeau liberals because lo and behold, the Trudeau liberals did just that. They hired a liberal connected firm, a, a firm run by one of Trudeau's buddies. Um, to do some essentially uh, work for liberal MPs. It's not partisan work. It's it's constant work. And I know it, both folks are not in the biz. This might sound like, yes, it is self-dealing, but it's the sort of self-dealing that everybody's done at all times. And here's the thing. We know about the liberal work because it has to be disclosed. There's rules around it. You've got to disclose it. You've got to say this is what it's for. There's some firewalls. You can't do, you know, you can't do this kind of work. Right. You can do that kind of work. It doesn't matter. The conservatives have just been going crazy for the last six months saying Justin Trudeau gives taxpayer funded contracts to his buddies and finds jobs for liberal insiders. Uh, you've probably seen the story I had online, Shay. W what is it? Conservatives are giving that's taxpayer-funded contracts and jobs to their insiders. <laughs> surprise, surprise. It's, you know, so it, it really, you know, in this case, it, it just sort of goes to, you know, you, you had a very big rock in your little glass house that you threw at somebody else's yeah. glass house, and now it's just blown up in your face. There is a big, there, I think there's a bigger issue here, though, for conservatives. Okay. And I got to tell you, the reason I started digging into these contracts was because I got a tip from conservatives about one particular um, business arrangement. And that involves Aaron O'Toole's deputy chief of staff. His name is Steve Outhouse. And Outhouse, by the way, a proud name, many Newfoundlanders, many Newfoundlanders in Alberta <laughs> probably bear. I want to just point that out. So Steve Outhouse is a really smart guy, a really smart tactician from an, a campaign standpoint. He's been around Parliament Hill for a long time, used to be a chief of staff in the Harper era, and really made a name for himself, I think, because he was the campaign manager for Leslin Lewis. Remember Leslin Lewis? Sure, she finished yeah. third in that leadership it campaign. Everybody was impressed with her. 
You got it, absolutely. And 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 Steve was the brains behind that. So when when O'Toole won the leadership, he said, "Steve, I want you in here." I want he, of course, he gave a contract to Steve's consulting company before he hired him on. Right, that's part of the story here. But then he said, "Steve, come on in and be my deputy chief of staff." And Steve accepted the job. But there was an arrangement in which. Steve Outhouse was allowed to continue his own consulting company, a consulting company that helps conservatives try to win nomination contests, win those nomination contests. Right. And he's had nine of those out there. Now, here's I, I want you to bear with me because this is sort of the how the how things, you know, how the intra party fighting sure. can handle yeah. uh, can work out. There's a riding in Ontario called Simcoe North, very conservative riding. They're going to vote conservative in the next election. It's, it's conservative. Simcoe North, it's uh, about an hour and a half north of Toronto, cottage country. Beautiful riding. I used to work there. The MP is a conservative, Bruce Stanton. He's retiring. And so every conservative knows the nomination fight, that's... My, many nomination fights in Alberta, that's actually the election. Right. Whoever wins yeah. that nomination is going to be the MP. So there's a guy named Adam Chambers who grew up in the riding. Uh, young guy, great great guy. I've met him a few times. I, I've known him because he used to work for Finance Minister Jim Flaherty. He's a favorite of some of the Harper-era insiders, that sort of gang. He grew up in the riding, and he, and he knew that this riding was going to come open, and he was ready to become the MP, and he's been, he's been organizing or whatever. Problem? Steve Outhouse, one of his clients, a social conservative client, is poised to beat him. This race concludes on the weekend. And I've got conservatives who are fans of this Adam Chambers guy, a conservative, sort of a, you know, not a SOCON, but a libertarian, that, right. that sort yep. of guy. Yep. He's going to lose to the SOCON run by Steve Outhouse, who's the deputy chief of staff to O'Toole. And as I mentioned, Outhouse has nine of these contracts. And so there are conservatives saying, what is the top aide to the leader doing trying to fill the conservative caucus with more social conservative MPs? Now, in some parts of the country, of course, hey, we want more social conservative exactly, MPs. Sure. Yeah. This is... This has been a constant tension within the Conservative caucus. The, the SOCONs who have definite views about right-to-die legislation, about uh, banning conversion therapy, about you know parents' right to take care of their children, any number of issues. They have strong uh, faith-based views and sometimes are in conflict with their other conservative colleagues. And so this, and this is how this little you know tension that's yeah. been there forever has flared up into this discovery that, lo and behold, O'Toole's office not only gave Outhouse a contract, allowed him to continue sort of essentially what, what one conservative told me was a side hustle to run all these nomination campaigns. And he gets a fee for it. He might earn, you know, anywhere 5000 10000 15000 bucks. That is donor money. That's not tax money. Right. That's money coming from conservative donors to run these nomination campaigns. Uh, in the meantime, you know, the guy gets 160 grand a year, uh, probably uh, somewhere in that range to be the deputy chief of staff to the leader of the official opposition. So that has conservatives inside a little bit. What are we doing here? And then, of course, as you can appreciate the, the headline, um, Aaron O'Toole gives $240,000 for the contracts to his buddies. Well, you know, that is uh, catnip to New Democrats, sure. to liberals, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, I got a lot of people texting me, David, saying, well, that's party money. No, no, no. We're talking about taxpayer money, these contracts, right? This is this is no different what, than what the liberals are doing. This isn't conservative party money. This is taxpayer money. 
Yeah, but let me be real clear. There, it's, there is both. Both, yeah. So when I say O'Toole's office has given his buddies, not buddies, supporters, etc., $240,000 in contracts, that is taxpayer money. And that's gone to, for example, you know, in Quebec... Uh, O'Toole had a campaign co-chair for leadership. It was an MP that lost, a guy named Alupa Clark. Well, guess what? Alupa Clark got a $72,000 contract that you and I pay for to, quote, be an advisor to O'Toole. Other campaign leadership staff got contracts with 80000 bucks, 30000 bucks. That's all taxpayer funded. Now, Outhouse, the guy at the center of this, he too got a contract for 18000 bucks paid by taxpayers to help with the, quote, transition from sheer to O'Toole. Okay. But after that contract was over, O'Toole said, I'm going to hire you. So he's, he's hired. Outhouse is on the public payroll as a, you know, a staffer in the OLO. That's all the taxpayer funded stuff. But there's this separate, as I, you know, as I said, it was called a side hustle. Right. Yeah. That Outhouse has going on where he's running nomination campaigns. That fee is paid by donors to the party. So that is not taxpayers. That is conservative party members who, you know, contribute to a campaign and the funds in that campaign pay for consultants like Outhouse. So you see Outhouse is in the sort of nexus here where he's getting a salary on the taxpayer dime. He once had a contract on the taxpayer dime, but now he's got nine clients. That's on the conservative party donors dime to help with these nomination contests. I I mean, as I say, there's, the big picture here is, first of all, it really neutralizes conservative attacks against the Trudeau liberals for awarding contracts to their buddies, right? Because sure, there's the hypocrisy course, yeah, thing. Yeah. That's first. But then there's this other issue because I've already seen liberals and the Democrats say, see, there's a guy, a top aide in O'Toole's office trying to stack the deck with SOCON candidates. And you know what liberals do in campaigns. They, they go, you know, scary SOCON to the conservatives and they try to scare voters, mostly in Ontario and Quebec, that, you know, O'Toole's going to roll back abortion access rights and cancel same-sex marriage. He's not, but that's what the Trudeau liberals want to scare voters with. And then when they see a top aide to O'Toole in his office, helping out candidates, some of whom, but not all, are social sure. conservatives. Stock in the deck that then way. Then they put two and two together, and now they start, uh, they're, away they go to the races. So, so you know, this is why, you know, for Aaron O'Toole, this is a bit of a problem. Absolutely. Uh, that, that he needs to get a hold of. No doubt. Uh, David, great breakdown. Uh, always love the insight. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, no problem, Jay. And again, if you're confused by it all, <laughs> globalnews.ca, we got it online. The full there. story is there, absolutely. Thank you so much, David. Okay, cheers. David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent, who's been doing some digging here. And um, yeah, I mean, just the the response from, from listeners. How do I get a piece of that action? That's one of the reasons I'm voting for a separatist party. Where do these people come from? They have no morals. Um, and you know what? And somebody's saying, it's 240K. I mean, come on, it's peanuts. Okay, sure, it is peanuts. Uh, let's get away from the dollars and cents and talk about the principles behind it, right? You can't stand up and accuse one party of handing out deals to their friends while you're handing out deals to your friends. It doesn't matter what the dollar value is. Um, it's hypocrisy. And I remember, I'm old enough to remember when hypocrisy was something that politicians didn't want to get tagged with. doesn't seem to be as big of an issue now. Uh, but you're right. The dollar numbers uh, are much, much smaller in this instance, but it's the exact same thing. Just cost a little bit less.
Earlier this week, we spoke with uh, some agricultural people who were telling us uh, just how dire things had become, not only in Alberta, but in fact right across the prairies uh, due to the weather that we've seen so far to start this summer. It has not been a good situation, as you know. And uh, at the time, we were talking about the fact that they really needed some support from government uh, in order to try and get through the situation that they're dealing with right now. Well, yesterday, the federal government did in fact come forward with a plan to provide some help for uh, producers in the prairies. Um, we'll find out exactly what it is and if it's going to be enough, but Federal Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau announced uh, a few different steps yesterday. She was in Manitoba. They're dealing with um, crop producers and with uh, beef producers as well. So let's get some insight onto exactly what was announced and what it will mean. Joining us, we have Dr. Melanie Woke, who is the chair of the Alberta Beef Producers. She's also a veterinarian and she's a rancher from uh, our province. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having us, Shay. Uh, let's just get an update. It's been a few days since we talked. Uh, obviously, we've had a little tiny bit of rain in parts of the province, but things are still very, very dire, right? Yeah, we had a little bit of rain here last night. Uh, we're in the northeast part of the province, about 100 miles east of Edmonton, and uh, we got about three-tenths, which is nice, but it's definitely not going to turn things around. Um, so the announcement that came from the government yesterday, I know that uh, there was a lot of talk about how desperate things were and the government had to step in. Just your initial reaction to what was announced by the government yesterday. We were extremely pleased with what Minister Bebo announced yesterday. Uh, Alberta Beef Producers has been working tirelessly the last two weeks to let the government know what's going on and, and really provide some pro- producer-led uh, responses to this drought. What was announced yesterday was that... Um, the agri-recovery program, which is a part federal, part provincial program, will be helping out uh, beef producers um, in, in regards to some extraordinary costs that are associated with this drought, and that includes some um, feed, uh, help with buying extra feed, help with transportation, and... Um, and uh, also the, uh, it was announced that the livestock tax deferral... Right, yeah would be uh, instituted. So what that means is that if producers have to liquidate part or all of their breeding herd, um, that money can be put away and um, then be used in the future when when things improve and so they can buy back into their herd. Um, So several areas of Alberta, it's not a widespread announcement for that. We're hoping that there will be more areas included because some very severely affected areas haven't been named yet for that. And the primary concern, obviously, is a lack of feed um, for beef producers in our province. So as you said, there's a few different ways they're looking at that. Um, Let's just uh, dig a little deeper into there. Basically, what they're saying is, you know, um, for for producers that, you know, their crops just aren't sellable, um, there's a bonus for them converting it into feed that perhaps you can use, correct? Well, we haven't, yeah, we've asked about, you know, possibly having some incentive for them to do that. Yeah. The problem with that is that a lot of these crops are tied up in, in crop production contracts, so that is where they are uh, uh, sold in a futures-type manner, and so they have to deliver a certain amount of grain, um, and that's where we're getting tied up a little bit here. Uh, there's uh, AFSC, which... Uh, which runs the uh, or delivers the program in regarding crop insurance has been very very helpful for us in getting pre-harvest assessments but it doesn't mean that we're going to be able to get all those crops converted to cattle feed we're keeping our fingers crossed but um, these production contracts are really kind of tying us up 
Now, the other uh, development here, um, and, and I guess we need to explain, first of all, that because the, the feed situation has become so dire for producers that, as you said, they're selling off their herd in a lot of cases, or at least part of it, uh, just because they can't find feed and they can't feed the animals. Um, and then there's the tax implications because you need to buy back their herd, but you've got to pay tax on selling. So you're getting relief on the tax side of that, correct? We are, but, you know, we have to... What I'd like non-producers to recognize is, is, as you mentioned, is just how widespread this is. Yeah. So not only the Western Canadian provinces, there's also a large part of Western Ontario, which we are heard hearing is very dry, and they are also starting to liquidate. And then also we have to remember that our largest trading partner in the beef industry, the United States, is under very similar conditions where... 50% of their agriculture land is deemed to be under severe drought. So the other problem with, with these cows is, you know, we, there's no feed, but the other issue is, is where do we sell them to and what is this going to do to our market prices? Most producers right now are kind of sitting, trying to decide what to do, trying to decide if they can somehow squeak their cattle through, but it, it's a really tough decision. and. You know, in, in the last few years, our national herd numbers have really been declining, and and this is another concern: is is we're really trying to keep these mother herd, these mother cow numbers up, because if we lose any more producers, our our fear is that they're just not going to come back to this industry. And uh, obviously, as you said, you know, I mean, we're we're still early uh, in basically the summer season here in Canada, and and things are not going to be improving. So, um, what are you hoping to see? You know, in the coming days, weeks, and months. Obviously, this is going to be an ongoing situation, right? It is, and you know, you have to remember too that as much as we try and plan for these kinds of things, where we have leftover feed, we try and leave some leftover pasture, you know, through the winter, so we've got some in the spring. It only carries us through for maybe. You know, another few months, we, if we hit minus 40 conditions like we did last year, you know, to keep those cows warm and healthy, you have to feed them more. And these are all things that we have to factor into how many cows we're able to keep and for how long. Um, you know, I guess our, our biggest help right now would be to get more of these crops converted to cattle feed. It's something that's got to be done quite quickly if we get a lot more heat um, because we'll lose the nutritional value of those crops as well. That's probably the biggest thing we're hoping for right now. Um, other than that, we're, you know, even if we were to get some good rain, we're definitely yeah. way behind the eight ball. It's so far behind at this point, catching up is almost an impossibility, right? I mean, yeah. rain would be great, of course, but uh, at this point, trying to, you know, salvage this season is almost a lost cause already. Exactly, and as I'm looking at my window right now, it's extremely windy, which doesn't help either. <laughs> Just makes things worse, yeah. Um, thank you so much for your time this morning, Doc. I really appreciate it. Well, we really appreciate it, too, and uh, we just really would like to thank the federal and the provincial governments again for, for being so quick in, in helping us out and realizing just uh, how important this issue is for us. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Okay, thank you very much, Doc. Thank you. Appreciate your time this morning. That's Dr. Melanie Woke, who is the chair of the Alberta Beef Producers. She's also a veterinarian, and she's a rancher from, as you heard, uh, about 100 miles away from Edmonton. Canada is no stranger to, nor- to uh, tornadoes. We know that well in Alberta, right? Um, Twister's pretty common. In fact, Canada um, sees more tornadoes than any other country on the planet, aside from the United States. We're second most in the world. We had a really bad one just a week or two ago in Ontario, in the Barrie area. We know they happen in this part of the world. Um, and there's some discussion now around the building codes. And should they be 
um, considering that. Should that be something that's put into our building code? And following the twister in Ontario, there is now discussion by city councillors there to say, yeah, we need to do this. We need to update our building codes. We need to take this into consideration. Um, not everybody's on board with putting it into the code, but it's a good discussion. So we're going to chat with Ken McGilvery, who is the Managing Director of the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction and an adjunct professor of emergency and disaster management at York University. Uh, Ken, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. No problem. And it's Glenn, actually. Oh, who do we have? I'm sorry. It's Glenn McGilvery. Glenn, I apologize. I have Ken on my list here. Sarah, please clean (laughs) out your desk. We'll have a meeting after the show. Um, Okay. Uh, Glenn, the the discussion around uh, bringing something into the building code. First of all, what would be brought into the building code? I mean, we're talking about tornadoes here, which are pretty powerful. What kind of things can be done in terms of changing the way we construct homes and buildings? So first of all, you know, for many, many years now in the southern United States, they've used these things called hurricane straps or hurricane clips yes. on homes that are uh, subjected to hurricanes. And that's what we're talking about. This is a... Uh, very simple strip of metal, very inexpensive, very simple to install. They can keep a roof on a home and up to an EF2 tornado, and and we believe into a lower-end EF3. That's basically the majority of tornadoes in Canada fall in that range, and we can keep a roof on. What's the yeah, cost? I mean, how, how much are we talking about spending in order to do this? About $200 a home, an average home. On a new build, right? And you can't retrofit build, right. this, obviously. Um, it's it's tough. It's tough, but uh, it can be done in some circumstances, but uh, not in every circumstance. Now, in terms of getting this done, we're seeing, as I said, some councillors in Barrie are now saying this is something that we need to do. I know there's some other people on board saying this is something that should happen. So it seems like there's some growing support for bringing this into the building code. It sounds like it. I mean, this time it seems a little different. Uh, we've kind of been here before, yeah. but we haven't had this kind of clamor before. There's a lot more talk about changing the code this time around. Um, particularly in Barrie, having been hit by two substantial uh, tornadoes in the last few decades and also having a third one just down the road in Angus in in 2014, that area keeps getting hit. Uh, So it's really bringing the the, the subject to the fore, that's for sure. Like you say, there have been some major events and we all know them, but they're pretty few and far between and there are large parts of our country that have never been touched by tornadoes. So when we take a look at this, is is that what it comes down to? The cost-benefit analysis in terms of, you know, it's pretty unlikely your home's going to be hit by a tornado, so why bring in the added cost? Is that the discussion? Uh, that's the discussion um, to some degree. Uh, but we have to face facts. Builders, particularly the building associations, yeah. Uh, we'll fight everything, essentially. And we were told that. We were told that point blank a few years ago, uh, my job is to fight everything. And so um, sometimes the cost-benefit doesn't matter. They, they'll argue it anyway. It's important to note, though, that these straps will keep a roof on a home in any type of windstorm, and not just a tornado. And we had a, a dandy in uh, early May of 2018, a massive windstorm blew through southern Ontario and southern Quebec. It caused over $600 million in damage for insurance companies. Not a tornado at all. It was just a flatline windstorm. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the argument. It's not just tornadoes. It's wind in general, and there are a lot of windy places in Canada. Yeah, and we've had all kinds of wind disasters in Alberta. Um, is it nowhere in the country that this building code has been changed, or are there some jurisdictions that have already made this move? 
No, no place in Canada has it right now. So the building code is under the purview of the provinces. Uh, it's not local. Uh, cities have no say over the building code. Only Vancouver does because of the Vancouver Charter. But no province has changed the code uh, for this yet. Uh, we've been fighting for it in Ontario for a few years now. We've had discussions with uh, the building community, building code officials, and so on. Um, this hopefully will, will turn the, the table, though. This is, uh, like I say, it's really bringing the, the subject to the fore. Yeah, and, and you know, in terms of costs, as you say, it's $200 on a new home build. So it's not a tremendous amount of money, and I guess it's a small price to pay for what we know the potential is, right? That's right, exactly. Um, this argument that uh, we're driving the, the cost of homes up and first-time buyers can't, can't purchase a home, we're not talking about thousands of dollars here. We're talking about $200. And there's a couple of ways of going at it, too. You don't have to buy necessarily the metal strips, the clamps I'm talking about. There's a couple of other ways of doing it. We don't care how we get there as long as we get there. Right. And, um, but this argument for the sake of $200 is, is folly. And if you went to the 20 people in Barrie right now who lost the roof of their home and asked them if $200 was too much, what do you think they would say? No, absolutely. I agree with you. I, I know the Home Builders Association has said, you know what, we're not against the, the, the clips. We don't think they're a bad thing, but we think recommending them is a better way to go rather than mandating them. Okay. So where do you think that's going to get us? <laughs> Fair there's, enough. A, there's a handful of builders um, that, um, that use these voluntarily. Uh, we're dealing with yep. one in St. Thomas, Ontario, uh, right now. We're building an entire subdivision with these things in it. It's completely voluntary. We're helping uh, this builder, Doug Terry Homes, and a couple of other builders uh, pay for these, so we're reimbursing them. Um, but he believes in them. But when you look at the majority of builders, they're not going to do this. And um, unfortunately, you know, voluntary actions don't work. So where do we go from here? I mean, how does the push continue? It seems to be gaining some momentum. What's next? Yeah, I, uh, I think we have to push ahead. Um, you know, we're going to do so with the province of Ontario and also through the National Research Council. So, you know, the, the federal government puts out the model building code. This is not forced down on the provinces. The provinces can voluntarily take up the, the model building code, but most of them do. They, most uh, provinces take the federal code and use it almost verbatim. So uh, we're going to talk to continue to talk with the National Research Council on the federal, the, the national building code, but also we're going to push at the provincial level as well. And you know, I think there are uh, officials in Calgary that are interested in this code change. There are officials in Barrie that are interested in this mm-hmm. code change. We have to get them on board. We have to get people writing letters, and we have to come up with this, you know, enough is enough type of thing, where um, this is happening too much. It's going to happen more. Uh, in the future because communities are are growing uh, and we can nip this in the bud for a very, very low price. Yeah, interesting discussion. Uh, Thanks a lot for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so there you go. What do you think? Hurricane straps, hurricane clips, is that something that we need to drop into the building code? Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.